Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. Right off the top, I just wanted to make a quick announcement that I am looking to network with any other podcasters, especially indie podcasters. Or if you know somebody in your circle of friends who's a podcaster, I'd love to hear from you, especially if you're in the New York, New Jersey, tri-state area, just looking to connect and moral support. So I'd love to hear from you. Email me at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. Secondly, just quickly, given these recent mass shooting events, do check the show notes for ways you can support these families that tragically have been impacted by, honestly, here's my editorializing, these really stupid, non-common sense gun laws we have in this country. And I do want to use this tiny megaphone that I have to speak about that in some greater detail and use some data analysis to make some very rational points that are not contentious at all regardless of your political affiliation. But unfortunately, we live in a country where there is no middle ground. I do want to make my case for some pretty common sense things that we can all do to improve the circumstance. But I'm still processing all of this, as I'm sure most of you are. But if you do want to support these families and these communities, do check the show notes for links to articles and GoFundMe sites that are vetted and you can contribute to support those families. So this weekend seems pretty frivolous (laughs) coming on the heels of what I just said, but we'll be covering just a a slew of content that's come out over this long weekend. And firstly, the Obi-Wan Kenobi show, which I'll be giving you a spoiler-free review of here, as well as I will be giving you my opinion of the recent half season or so. It's a strange distribution of this most recent season of Stranger Things on Netflix, and I'll give you that review as well. And finally, a spoiler-free review of the Top Gun film. Strange that these are all coming out at the same time. There is a cult of nostalgia for the 80s. And I feel even though Star Wars, the origin of Star Wars obviously is the late 70s, but in so many ways led to the culture of the 80s. And it is strangely ironic that this Obi-Wan Kenobi show, which is a direct lead-up in chronology to those films plus Stranger Things, which of course is primarily a vehicle for nostalgia and Easter eggs for 80s culture. And of course, Top Gun being one of the most iconic action films of the 80s. So a very strange conflation of things, maybe intentional to some extent, and maybe I can delve into what is leading us to have this constant need to look backwards culturally. It's been 10 years. The fight is done. We lost. Leave us alone, Ben. When the time comes, he must be trained. Like you trained his father. It's my responsibility. Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan. I've loved you always. There's a thing that swallows you. It holds you together when it's tearing you apart. It's terrifying. to hunting Jedi. They're coming. There's patience. Jedi are cowards. They failed you. There is no point in protecting them. 
to start things off, so I was planning to cover the Obi-Wan Kenobi show week to week, and I'm still on the fence as to whether I will do that. I'll have to discuss it with my co-host to see where he's at with it, Nick, to see if there's enough here to continue to explore, because I'm going to spoil slightly my review in that this was not horrible. I didn't hate it. I did hate aspects of it, to be honest, but I really feel like what is happening here? Like, what are we doing with these stories? I really feel, and I'm going to just lay down the line here <laughs> before I even break down the episode, that the whole entire Star Wars cycle has become this Russian nesting doll where the stories just get smaller and smaller and smaller. And I mentioned in an earlier conversation with Nick in one of these episodes how I have to give Marvel huge amounts of credit, and I'm much more vested in the Marvel series, the MCU, even though I am a child of the 80s, that I give them a huge credit for having built from Iron Man out a Russian nesting doll of layers of more and more and more, and the story just gets more and more and more expansive. Now, I feel like recently they've been having their growing pains. They have too much content out, too many movies, too many TV series, and most of them recently have not really worked for me. So I will grant that there is a limitation to what they're doing with their franchise management, but I can't help but continue to compare it to the Star Wars series in which we have these iconic first film and an excellent second film that expanded the mythology, but really from that point on was really the end of any kind of expansion of this mythology. The third film in the original uh, trilogy, a solid film with great action, but really just a regurgitation of everything that came in the first two films, which is not surprising for a third film. But then the prequels, they definitely expanded the universe, by the way, but not in a very successful way, not in a way that I found interesting. And now the new trilogy was really just regurgitating the first trilogy. And when they've tried to divert from that, either they failed or audiences just simply did not accept it. So now they found the success on their TV shows and they've really become like the Star Trek. It's so strange. Star Trek came before Star Wars. Star Wars was so much more massively popular. And now they are basically announcing that their strategy is very much a Star Trek strategy. We just want to have a lot of TV shows. But those TV shows have to be not an ever-expanding Russian nesting doll, an ever-shrinking one where we go back and back and back. And we've seen with The Mandalorian that they are now maybe a decade before the original trilogy of films. And now we're probably stepping yet another decade before that with this Obi-Wan Kenobi show. And we just saw a trailer now for Coruscant, I believe it's called, which is a prequel to Rogue One, which was already a prequel. So like I said, we're just going further and further and further back and all roads lead to the destruction of the Death Star, basically. And nobody has any interest in expanding this beyond that. <laughs> so there's all my biases right there on the line. So take everything I'm about to say in that context. I did enjoy most of the first season of The Mandalorian in that there was an opportunity there, whether you want to make an analogy to The Fugitive, the original Fugitive TV series, or The Incredible Hulk. This idea of the stranger who's morally compromised, but yet at their core are a good person and trying to do some good. It's a very simple story. It's the man with no name. And I really enjoyed this, that you could basically set a show conceptually in this timeline that is basically a Western, an outlaw on the lamb, has no affiliation to anybody, a samurai, another way to look at this. Lone Wolf and Cub is obviously one correlation or just generically samurai movies. And very much it is thematically a Western. And in a way that gives them a lot of freedom to play in the sandbox that is the Star Wars universe 
without having to dovetail too tightly with the original Skywalker legacy. And by season two, they, of course, could not quit the Skywalker legacy. Everything must lead back to Luke Skywalker. And I won't spoil everything, but I'm sure if you're listening to this, you probably are a Star Wars fan. And you already know, you've already seen the second season of The Mandalorian. I did not watch Boba Fett at all, although I do know there are tie-ins to Mandalorian. But that didn't make me want to see it more. It's just felt like, well, more of the same. We're, <laughs> we all know where all roads must once again lead. And unfortunately, we're in the same mindset here. Ewan McGregor reprises his role as the younger Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's crazy to see the previously on, which is basically a recap of the first three Star Wars movies, and to see a couple things. One is that the CGI, which was so excruciating back when that movie came out, maybe we're just so used to seeing everything be CGI that it wasn't as bad anymore. It kind of looks decent considering the world we live in now. It looks better than some of the contemporary CGI. Also amazing to see Ewan McGregor looking so young. <laughs> it's only 15 years ago, I guess, that when that last, um, 17 years ago, maybe, when the most recent of the trilogy came out, Revenge of the Sith. But man, you know, it's, you know, we're all just getting older. <laughs> so it's hard to forget that, you know, what people looked like back then and probably what I looked like back then, rather than I think about it. And we have this setup where Obi-Wan is in charge of watching over Luke. He is indescriptly running his tedious day-to-day -day life, cutting up some giant desert salmon of some kind we don't actually see the creature but we do see them cutting up the meat he takes a little piece of meat every single day plus his wages and that's the life he lives meanwhile we see meanwhile he keeps an eye on luke who's living with uncle owen as we saw at the end of the prequel trilogy played by joel edgerton someone who's vastly more popular more famous now than he was back when that film was made 17 years ago meanwhile leia is living with the organa family. We see Jimmy Smith's back, reprising his role from that prequel trilogy. But in the opening moments of the show, we actually saw the extermination of the Jedi-lings. And basically the story begins, it becomes the hunt for Obi-Wan for the purposes of bringing him to Darth Vader, which I assume is going to happen towards the end of the season. It's my guess at this point. Now here's going to be my criticism of the show. None of this is terrible. I really do like seeing Hugh McGregor in this, this role. Whenever he's on screen, things are pretty solid. He really does ground the show in a way that nothing else in the show works, in my opinion, to that level. I mean, some things work. But other than him, I really feel like the cast, almost, ex almost to a, a person, is miscast or just irritating, just giving a really irritating performance. I did really enjoy, by the way, Rupert Friend as the Grand Inquisitor. I'm pretty sure he's not going to be in any more episodes. That remains to be seen. But I really did do enjoy, did enjoy him in that role. But man, oh man, this actress who plays Riva, and I'm not blaming the actress, by the way, because obviously these are decisions that are made on the page and with the direction, Moses Ingram. I did not enjoy this performance at all. I mean, from the point of view of the construction of the script, it's pretty clear, and I won't spoil it here, that she probably has some history with Obi-Wan, which still hasn't been fleshed out, but it's pretty apparent by the end of this second episode. And even more problematic, I have to say, is the child actress who plays Leia. And once again, I am not faulting the actress. This, she's just doing what she's being told to do. But boy, what an irritating character. She is 10 years old and literally cannot keep herself from getting in trouble at every 
moment. She has like no sense of self-preservation or maybe it's just entitlement and maybe there's some criticism there. But my daughter is seven years old. And first of all, she knows how to be stealthy. She knows how to be quiet. <laughs> she literally plays ninja. It's like her favorite thing to do. And uh, Leia is the exact opposite. She is <laughs> basically announcing herself at every moment. And once again, maybe some criticism of her entitlement. But the most ridiculous thing is when she's in action sequences, there are multiple scenes in this show where, for example, Obi-Wan Kenobi is basically doing his impression of Trinity, jumping from rooftop to rooftop with parkour moves like at an incredible pace and cannot catch Leia, who, <laughs> once again, not to throw this poor actress under the bus, is at a light jog, but somehow people running at full sprint cannot keep up with her. <laughs> and my daughter at seven, I cannot keep up with her. She's so incredibly fast. But this girl is just casually jogging from rooftop to rooftop. And these people at full speed cannot catch up with her. And it happens multiple times. In one scene, she's in a, in a forest. And basically the same thing happens. None of these bounty hunters can keep up with her. And she's moving at a casual stroll. <laughs> so I don't understand. It's kind of the inverse of what happens with Jason Voorhees. She basically is moving at that pace. And somehow people at full sprint cannot catch her <laughs> and they obviously do not have these people in frame at the same time because none of this matches up correctly at all so some of this is the construction of it but also just her character and once again not the performance i don't love the performance but it's a child performance what are you going to do but just the character as written it's basically a mouse looking for a wolf <laughs> to climb into its mouth <laughs> she's just like where are the people who are trying to kill me i'm going to run into their <laughs> line of fire I, I don't understand the logic here other than just story writing to, to you know put somebody in danger to get you to the next scene i don't know like maybe this was in post-production they I, I did hear many stories about how the entire scripts were thrown out this show was supposed to be eight episodes long or something like that. They chopped them down to six episodes, you know, have had many production issues. They had no critic screenings of this until the very last minute. Yesterday, as a matter of fact, was the first time they showed them to critics at the exact same time they basically released it. And, and this is early in the day, obviously, so the reviews will still be rolling in. The reviews have been relatively kind to those first two episodes. It's not terrible. I mean, everything I've just said is irritating to me, but, you know, no worse than the plotting in most of these shows but it just feels just in general to me nothing in the star wars canon has been big or impressive or has moved the ball forward at all for decades now and it's just that this is maybe the most profitable ip out there and it's incredible to me that they just can't figure it out like not even when they're trying to do small scale stories there's nothing to make these things work and maybe i'm just jaded so maybe your mileage will vary if you're diehard Star Wars fan, I think you will probably be more forgiving of this, or maybe not. Maybe, you know, if you really are looking forward to this in a way that I probably am not as vested in, maybe you'll have even a worse reaction to it. So let me know. Drop me an email if you'd like to get your feedback to me. Am I wrong about this? Did you enjoy it more than that? Need some introduction at gmail.com. And I mean, I'm just intrigued enough in the final moments which I won't spoil here, but just in the final moment of this second episode, and I understand now why they preview two episodes, because there is a little hook at the end of that second episode that does intrigue enough to just see where this thing goes. And it's only six episodes, so I'm probably going to watch it to the end. But I don't know if I'm going to be covering this from week to week here in the podcast. I don't know how much there is to talk about here. Yeah, so a very moderate recommendation 
if you are really looking forward to this, if you are new to the Star Wars universe, nothing here, I think, will hook you in. Nothing. But if you are a diehard, if you've been watching all the other shows, to be a completist, you'll probably watch this. You're not going to hate it. Can it get better than it is? Maybe. Maybe it finds its footing in the next few episodes. And I will probably stick around to check it out. I mean, it's only a few more episodes. But yeah, I was pretty disappointed with this. All right, on to our next topic. Stranger Things, Season 4, Part 1. It's time. Don't try to be heroes. There is no shame in running. Sick. What do you think, Mike? It's risky as hell. Chances of success are 20 to 1. Never tell me the odds. Okay, next topic is Stranger Things Season 4. This first batch of episodes, I believe we're getting seven episodes in this first batch. All very long episodes, by the way. I can't believe <laughs> this show used to have a, a very, very easy binge, 45-minute episodes. And I remember watching the first season with my wife. And maybe just a spoiler for my general reaction of this season as well. If the episodes had been longer, if the season had been longer, we probably would have opted out at some point. But it just goes down so easy, it was very easy to just hop from one episode to the next and really just burn through that first season. And she really is not someone to binge a show. But this season, these episodes are so long, and there'll be two very long episodes to wrap things up. I think it's for the July 4th weekend, actually, that those episodes will drop. And maybe that's the only qualification I'd have here in my enjoyment of the show, is that it just seems way too long. Although, I have to tell you, I struggled to get through that first episode. I have not yet completed this. I think I'm around four episodes and just starting the fifth episode, I believe now. And I did struggle to get through that first episode. I had to pause it multiple times and get some snacks or have some dinner. But then after that first episode, you just kind of slip into this world. The Duffer brothers, the creators of the show have a interesting formula. I feel like I probably could have skipped this entire series, all of it, and not really have missed anything because it's not really that deep or memorable to be honest after i i watched the, the uh season i don't really remember any of the plot points and yet this is really like a definitive binge show once you get into this world it is so easy to just slip to the next one and to the next one it's a show that i really feel needs to be binged so maybe this is the most successful version of that netflix binge recipe and this show is honestly it, it's the definition of a critic proof show i do enjoy it despite all those qualifications I just gave you. It's obviously massively successful and they're giving you exactly what you want. And I can imagine, I mean, if I was a teenager, this probably would be one of my favorite shows for sure. And I know my youngest nephew loves this show and uh, he's probably getting to an age now where some of the luster's coming off. But growing up, he loved this show. I mean, I know people when I was growing up who thought The Goonies was their <laughs> favorite movie of all times. And of course, Goonies is uh, one of the very core reference points to this show, which is really a pastiche of 80s references. So I'm assuming if you're listening to any of this that I'm saying right now, you are a fan of the show already. But just a little history on the show. The Duffer Brothers, who had one film that I think had never even been released, brought this to Netflix. It became massively successful at the time, their most successful show. Sean Levy, also very important in getting this show produced. And he does direct a few episodes. Every season he does. He just made the absolutely terrible Adam Project, by the way, for Netflix also, and The Better Free Guy, which I just watched on HBO Max very recently, which was good, but <laughs> completely forgettable, really, honestly, <laughs> not maybe not a bad 
corollary to Stranger Things. I watched that on the plane and honestly retained none of it, but enjoyed it in the moment. And what the Duffer Brothers have created here is this nostalgic pastiche of the 80s and really caught it at this perfect moment. We are probably now in pop culture transitioning to a nostalgia for the 90s. You see Yellow Jackets being just one example of a recently successful show that leans heavily into 90s nostalgia. But we are coming off of a spate of shows and movies that are all 80s nostalgia. And I mean, just this weekend, we have the Obi-Wan Kenobi show, which I reviewed here. And of course, Top Gun, the Top Gun movie, which is doing gangbusters business right now. And a huge chunk of that is the nostalgia for the 80s, not only in an older generation's nostalgia, having grown up watching the original Top Gun repeatedly on cable, but their kids and their grandkids even at this point, who just have this loose cultural affinity for that and really just for the time period itself. So this pastiche of things has very much a Goonies vibe, this group of friends together, but it's also not just movie references. It is references to the Stephen King novels that I grew up reading in the 80s as well. You think of It, you think of Stand By Me, these group of mostly boys hanging out together in the summer, discovering themselves, exploring their friendships, and of course, getting into (laughs) supernatural trouble, not so much with Stand By Me, obviously, but with most of these other properties. And it's this action adventure and horror. They're mixing together these different genres. And in previous seasons, we had references to E.T. We had references to The Goonie. We had references, another big reference, the John Carpenter thing. And of course, the score of this show is extremely John Carpenter influenced. That synth score is very much like a John Carpenter score. And they've expanded some of the references. You definitely had a feeling of gremlins in subsequent seasons. And it's just all this pastiche of other things. But... The kids, they've done a good job casting these kids. They, you know, As they've aged, I really thought they were going to become more annoying. Some of the cast members maybe have less charisma than they did when they were younger, or maybe it's just the plotting of the show. But they have kept them apart in this season. They have some of them in California. Some of them are still in Indiana. And really, you can really feel that some of the cast members simply have much, much less to do here this year. And part of that, like I said, is just the fact that you have literally a story in Russia, (laughs) you have a story in California, you have a story in Indiana, you have a story in Utah, I believe. So they are spread out all over the place. And maybe that also leads to the reason they have the, this, um, length of these episodes, but I do feel like they are mostly fulfilled. Honestly, if you've liked previous seasons of stranger things, you are obviously going to watch this and you are going to enjoy this for sure. I haven't finished it yet, so I don't have my final verdict in, so I'll keep this relatively brief, but I think you will enjoy this. If you're not a fan, if you're totally not on board, this is not actually, it really depends on whether you're a fan or not, whether you think this is a good season or not. If you have no handle on this thing, if you have no entry point to this, I can't imagine this being an entry point for anybody. So start at the beginning, obviously, which is all very easy to do on Netflix if you do choose to. And if you like that first season, then you're going to like this season as well. They've spent a lot of money on this. It looks great. It's a sprawling story for better and worse. And that's my mini review. It's a, you know, pretty entertaining. I will mention just a few things, you know, for younger listeners who didn't live through this time period, just some of the references that are coming out here. First of all, you see that they're in this Hellfire Club. They're fans of Dungeons and Dragons. And there's also this plot where there's a satanic panic within the community. And this is actually maybe the important, an important cultural reference. And it's something crazy that happened at this time. Uh, There's a reference here to a Newsweek article that talks about the rise of Satanism among Dungeons and Dragons players. And this is true. There was a real fear. There were kids who were 
railroaded for crimes and just outcasts who were labeled Satanists because they played Dungeons and Dragons. And there was this legitimate satanic panic. People were coming up with crazy numbers that hundreds of thousands of children were being murdered uh, during sat satanic rituals. And people went to jail for this, right? Right here in my uh, home uh, state of New Jersey, a very famous case where absolutely ridiculous claims were taken at face value supposedly hundreds of children were killed even though there were no bodies found and it's just just insane and these people went to jail for years so it, it's a it's a shocking uh, time in history and do track down that historical reference point because it's pretty fascinating and maybe there's a little cultural commentary here about groupthink and we also see it in the bullying of 11 which is once again absolutely hilarious this is <laughs> unintentionally i believe the fact that you have the entire school ganging up on 11 bullying her Oh, I do have to call out one thing, which is it's incredibly unfortunate. And I was going to start with this, but you know, now that I'm more than four episodes into this show, I'd forgotten it. And it also speaks to the Obi-Wan Kenobi show. What an unfortunate set of circumstances where this show comes out this week, as well as Obi-Wan, that opens in both cases with the massacre of a bunch of children. Now, not a spoiler here. It's literally the opening scene of both shows. And they both have disclaimers, so even less of a spoiler and me telling you that because they mentioned it but i would say it's a trigger warning and especially especially with this show with stranger things i am a little annoyed with netflix not with the filmmakers they had no idea what they were putting together at the time but i think netflix did have the the time to have cut off this opening scene just cut it off completely because we do see it in flashback later in the show and they simply could have just jumped in to the present day and cut back cut out this flashback sequence that starts the series because this is very upsetting. It almost turned me off to the whole show. I'm like, I don't even want to see this right now. Do not want to see a bunch of children get massacred on this week when we've had an actual massacre in this country. Unfortunately, if that's the barometer of how we release these shows, we may never be able to release a show again because it just unfortunately happens so often that we have like mass shootings at schools on a nearly monthly basis, if not weekly in some cases. So I don't blame the Duffers or anybody who created the show for this. They obviously did not know at the time, but I do blame Netflix for just, you know, you know if it was my decision to make, <laughs> obviously not, but if it was, I would have just cut that whole first scene out and just let it unfold in flashback. And that would have been it. And if people were a little confused, so what? I mean, I don't want to see that, honestly. Don't want to see it. I'm, I'm just tired of, I mean, it, this is a real world problem. I'm just tired of it. I really am. <laughs> sorry. Sorry about that digression. But other than that, I did want to mention some cultural references here on a much lighter note. Adding to this mix of ingredients here there are some new ingredients that are mixed in children are having nightmares repeated nightmares someone's stalking them in their dreams someone's killing them in their dreams so obviously a nightmare on elm street reference but this is just the way this show is it does not take long <laughs> before someone inside the episode mentions nightmare on elm street so <laughs> so even if you catch on to it early and you're like oh look i've figured this out they're like oh don't worry <laughs> they'll point it out to you there's no there's no subtlety here in this show once we do go into this netherworld, there is definitely some of this horror horrific imagery is very Hellraiser inspired, I would say. And Hellraiser, once again, I think it was released in 87, the first Hellraiser movie, Clive Barker's adaptation of his own short story. And even more so Hellraiser 2, which came out in 89, I think, or 1990, with this hellscape that they enter. And this is set in 1986. So speaking of Nightmare on Elm Street, at one point, two of the girls go to interview an insane killer and two interesting points there it is almost a shot for shot imitation of the science of the lambs from 1991 absolutely brilliant one of the greatest thrillers of all times if not the greatest thriller of all times and they're aping the first time that clarice goes and interviews 
Hannibal Lecter. And then when they go and meet with the killer, the supposed killer, it turns out to be Robert Englund, the original Freddy Krueger. Some other references, they are driving a station wagon when they pull up to the insane, into the insane asylum. And of course, they even mention Michael Myers here, the Halloween killer in this show. Once again, they, they can't not call their own shots. And if you know that film, you know that Michael Myers escapes from the asylum and in a station wagon. We also see references to war games. And of course, they have to call that out also before they even make the illusion they call out war games first. Oh, and of course, you know, this is something that's been in the public conscience recently from the beginning of the show, from the very inception of it, has very much a feeling of it. And I think part of the reason that it was such a massive success was because the pump had been primed with the Stranger Things TV series. So that's my review in a nutshell. Good, but not great, but on par, honestly, with the rest of the series. If you are a fan of the series, you're going to love this. You might complain about the length. I definitely feel it's way too long to get through. Even on a weekend, I need to take a break here <laughs> to finish it maybe and uh, have a discussion. Maybe with uh, bring my nephews on, who's a big fan of the show. And definitely with my sister when we have our conversation about Barry on Monday. So that's something to look forward to. We will be covering the most recent two episodes of Barry on the episode we drop on Memorial Day. So maybe by then I finish this off, but I do need to take a little bit of a break with these really long episodes. But hey, like I said, if I was a teenager and this was my favorite show, many teenagers out there who I believe this is their favorite show, then hey, it's just more to love. And I don't have to watch it all in one weekend. Although they probably all will. All right, hang in there. One more review. Everyone here is the best there is. Who the hell are they gonna get to teach us? Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. Let me be perfectly blunt. You are not my first choice. You are here at the request of Admiral Kazansky, AKA Iceman. He seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy. What that is, I can't imagine. With all due respect, sir, I'm not a teacher. Just want to manage expectations. Okay, final topic, Top Gun Maverick. So this movie is supposed to have come out, I believe, two years ago at this point. And now finally being released, this is kind of one of the very last of these delayed releases from the fallout of the pandemic. And my experience with the Top Gun film, the first one, is that I think I've only seen it all the way through one time. It was right in my wheelhouse. It was, you know, I was a teenager at the time when that first film came out. And yet I'm pretty sure I did not see it in the theaters, or maybe I did see it in the theaters. It was one of those things that stayed in the theaters for so long. And I honestly don't think I've ever seen the movie all the way through more than once. But it's one of those films that just was on cable TV at that time for the next 10 years, whether that was on HBO or eventually on those weekend TBS action blocks of films. It was in constant rotation. So I've probably seen many, many scenes from this movie many times, but I've only seen it all the way through once. And I mention that because this film is very much made for any audience. I mean, you honestly just have to know the very bare mythology of Top Gun to be able to follow along with this, which I think is to its credit. There's plenty of Easter eggs if you are a fan of the original. But if you're not, if you want to bring your kids or if you're someone who's never engaged with the, the film, you can pretty much fully appreciate it just with the bare mythology. They even have a few flashbacks thrown in to flesh out anything you might have missed or forgotten along the way. So this is an interesting blend of talent here. You have Joseph Kaczynski directing, 
And he was really a special effects star who scored a huge hit box office wise, although maybe not critically, with Tron Legacy. And then made a, a movie with Tom Cruise's first movie with Tom Cruise, Oblivion, a few years later. And I'm actually a minor fan of both of those films. There's a lot of detractors for both of those films, but I actually like both of them, mostly because of this beautiful visualization that his talent as a special effects artist obviously brought to those projects. After making Oblivion and following up Tron with Oblivion, these two very, very sci-fi heavy, very special effects heavy films, he then made a movie called Only the Brave, which I do highly recommend. This is based on a true story of some firefighters who saved the town and sacrificed some of them, sacrificed themselves to do so. And it's really a heartwarming, fact-based story of heroics, and it really will make you pump your fists and cheer. And really, that is the same kind of feel you're going to have walking out of this new Top Gun film. That film, by the way, which I do recommend and is available for streaming, I think, on FX, also featured Miles Teller and Jennifer Connelly, two, two featured actors in this current film as well. So that's some of the background there. And that leads us, of course, to Tom Cruise, the unaging action star of his entire lifetime, basically, his lifespan, practically, at this point. And some interesting notes I'll make here, or I'll point out. No spoilers here, by the way, absolutely no spoilers for this film. But I will say that my mini review is that this is a film that I really can't spoil, because if I told you, as you're watching this film, from moment to moment, to tell me what do you think is going to happen in the next scene, and what do you think is going to happen after that, and who do you think he's going to meet in the next scene? If I basically gave you pen and paper and told you, asked you those questions as you were watching the film, I think you'd get every answer right, or most of them right. There is really not a single surprise in this film. It's giving you exactly what you want, exactly what you want. And I would say to its credit, I'm not always a fan of something that's being spoon-fed to you, exactly what you're hoping to see, exactly the way you wanted to, hitting all those beats. But I mean, I think that's what popcorn film is at its best is giving you those things in the right proportions making it feel fresh even if really it's not fresh at all and it's all just aces across the board the flying scenes are excellent it has barely a plot at all i mean i'll tell you the plot of it right now it's that maverick is this is his last chance he basically can't get work anywhere else because he's still a maverick after all these years and he gets brought to fly a total suicide mission but nope he's not there to fly the mission He's there to train other people to fly the mission. And of course, he's a maverick. He's not someone who trains people. He's someone who does stuff, not does, not trains. Is he willing to relinquish that mantle? And that's the whole story. He trains these fighters for a mission. And then, of course, they eventually have to go on that mission. And I won't give you the details of the mission, but hey, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> it's basically an impossible mission. And you know, it's mission impossible. No, no pun intended or pun intended, I should say. And can they pull it off? And there are lots of little Easter eggs pertaining to the original Top Gun. We have a football scene on the beach, slightly less homoerotic than the volleyball scene in the original film. We have the return of Val Kilmer. Very touching, by the way, to see Val Kilmer back as Iceman. If you know Val's story, and I do recommend you track down his documentary, I think it's just called Val on Amazon Prime. Just really an idiosyncratic performer and has had throat cancer recently and lost his voice and they tie that into the film itself and there's a really emotional scene between him and Tom Cruise and I think some of the emotion that comes through in that scene is just from these two actors who've been like at this for so long and there's some emotional heft to just their career trajectories and their friendship 
Some other kind of cool things I'll point out is I like the fact that when Tom Cruise goes to meet up with Jennifer Connelly early in the film, we hear David Bowie on the soundtrack, Let's Dance, is playing. And interestingly enough, the year that Top Gun came out, the original, 1986, was also the year that Jennifer Connelly was in Labyrinth with David Bowie. Definitely not a coincidence that that's what's happening at that scene, but I just thought it was interesting. Some other interesting things I'll point out is I love that John Hamm is reprimanding Tom Cruise as if he's just this like annoying bratty kid who just still can't get his stuff together. <laughs> and John Hamm, by the way, is almost 10 years younger, younger than Tom Cruise. Hard to believe, by the way, Tom Cruise is ageless. Also nice to see a romance between Tom Cruise and Jennifer Connelly, who are almost age appropriate. I guess she's seven or eight years younger than him, than him. although these are two people who <laughs> have not aged like the rest of us. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Maybe the most interesting thing that happens in this entire film, and this is not a spoiler once again, because it's maybe the second scene in the whole entire movie. <laughs> There's a conversation that happens between Maverick and Annette Harris playing Admiral Kane, where he basically just says to him, it's been over 30 years. This is your whole career. You have all these commendations, and yet you're still just a captain. What went wrong? And Tom Cruise's answer is, I don't know. It's a question for the ages or something like that. Now, the reason I found this so interesting was that when I was preparing to do this segment in the podcast, I was writing a little script in my head, basically, on the way to the movie theater. And my internal script was saying, it's so interesting to see Tom Cruise. Here he is pushing 60. I think he's going to be 59 this year. He's pushing 60. And he still is playing the superhero. He still is playing the same role he's had his whole entire career. He had, at one point in his career, started to drift into more dramatic roles. But as you approach 60, you're playing fathers. You're playing grandfathers. You're playing people who are uh, have lost their way in their careers and are trying to make a second career. You're, you're doing <laughs> tragedies about dealing with disease, basically confronting the mundanities of death and aging. But not Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise has continued to put himself in the role of the superhero as he has for many, many years. And as a matter of fact, he kind of failed at a few of these experiments that he tried early in his career where he was taking chances. He was able to make romantic comedies. He was able to make thrillers like Collateral playing the bad guy. And these movies were blockbusters. He was able to sell any kind of project. And then he got like wrapped on his knuckles. A few of his films were not as successful as previously and now he just basically hangs off of rocket ships and you know he's probably going to die on screen at some point and i was thinking yeah that's what he's become he's just become this guy who can't let go of this persona that he created for himself this indestructible superhero the maverick so it's kind of poignant to see him have this conversation where he's saying i don't know what went wrong and later on with that conversation with Iceman, where he's telling him you gotta you have to let go you have to let go and he's saying, I can't let go. I can't let go of the past. So it's almost like maybe confessional, possibly. So if there's any kind of interesting subtext here, I would say that's what it is. It's this metaphor for Tom Cruise's career. And I do find it very ironic that I was literally thinking about this as I walked into the theater. And then the first or second scene, I'm like, wow, subtext becomes text right there. Aside from that, I mean, like I've mentioned before, there is a suicide mission about a nuclear arms refinery that needs to be destroyed. No one can possibly hit this target it's it's like a, an impossible shot just like star wars or something so there's like a, you know a recreation of the impossible shot from the star wars film not that dissimilar and i mean in so many ways this is military propaganda maybe military pornography but more so than anything else and there'll probably be many many people recruiting to 
fly fighter jets coming after this film, just like the first Top Gun motivated a lot of people to join the military. But I think in both cases, the film doesn't wallow in military porn the way that, for example, Michael Bay movies oftentimes do. I think really it's more about overcoming your own limitations. And these kind of very stereotypically American, I would say, messages, which I think are going to go over very, very well with this core audience and with all audiences. This is going to be a very, very popular film. And it's just a very entertaining film that, like I mentioned before, gives you exactly what you want. There are no surprises in this thing, but it works. It works across the board. It's really well constructed. The action is excellent and thrilling. You should see it on as big a screen as you can. And that's all there is to it. (laughs) Check your mind at the door. There's really no uh, deeper messaging here. It's just an entertaining film. And in so many ways, the plot is so simple. I think about how convoluted, uh, although I was a fan of the Doctor Strange movie and its own backbending plot machinations and multiverses and all this complexity. But you know what? A simple story told well is still maybe the best popcorn movie recipe that there is. Maybe it's time to simplify things a little bit with these <laughs> these convoluted action movies, as opposed to you got to fly down an, a valley and drop a bomb in a hole. <laughs> Can you do it? That's the question. Very simple stakes, very entertaining, and I do recommend it. And if you're a fan of the first one, you're going to love this one. And if you're a casual fan or non-fan of the first one, you're still going to like this. And I'm sure many, many people are going to see it this week. So that's the show. Just a reminder that we just wrapped up this first half of Better Call Saul, a really shocking and exciting finale there. Do check out that episode or catch up on the show and then listen to our recaps in this same feed. And if you have been listening to our recaps of Barry and Shining Girls, I will be regrouping with my sister later in this holiday weekend. We'll be moving the Barry recaps to the beginning of the week now that we're not dropping the Saul episodes there closer to the air date. And we have uh, two episodes to cover, the next up one and then the one we missed this week. Barry's been exceptional this season, really great. Another great episode that we have not yet recapped from last week, but we'll be covering both of those in the next episode. And Shining Girls, a show that very few people are watching, unfortunately, but I thought it had a very interesting episode this week as well. We probably will not have time to cover it this week, but next week the season will be ending and I think I will be making one final pitch of the show and getting my sister's final thoughts on that season of show. And The Boys is coming, and I will be having conversations about Obi-Wan Kenobi as the show unfolds. It's only got a month of episodes to go, so in some way we'll be covering that. Once again, not that it's terrible, just can't imagine talking about that for an hour every week. (laughs) There's just not enough there there, in my opinion. Once again, just a reminder that if you are a podcaster or you know a podcaster who'd like to connect and maybe do some networking with me and other podcasters as well, have them reach out to me at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. Enjoy the holiday weekend. Look for that episode probably on Monday, the Barry Recap episode. Talk to you soon.
for the rain.